Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Everything's really coming together rather well. What began the year as Peter Eckersley blathering away in a hut in a muddy Essex field has been developed by wireless companies, engineers, politicians and performers. But as October arrives, somebody's missing. A new captain of the good ship broadcasting. But who will apply? I know, of course. I've read ahead. This time, a keen young Scot sees that advertisement and sets out on a course that will see him become Sir, Lord, the first DG and above all, well, literally above all, the most influential person to shape the BBC. The name's Reith, John Reith. Licence fee to spend. And without him, I'm sure we wouldn't be here bringing you the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London College. Well, hello, hello and hello. I never quite know how to spell hello. I mean, nowadays, we've settled on the E in hello, haven't we? But it seems 100 years ago, it was more of an A, hello. And then some hellos uh, with a U in it seem to have crept into Enid Blyden. Anyway, never a hello or a hollow. Uh, welcome to the British Broadcasting Century podcast. My name is Paul Carenza. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we are embarking on this mission to tell the story of how broadcasting came to Britain. And of course, that means the launch of the BBC and radio. We'll ultimately get to other broadcasters and television and things like that. But we're going the slow way. And speaking of slow, apologies for any delay in this podcast reaching your ears and indeed in the next couple of podcasts reaching your ears. Uh, the first few episodes of this were done in sort of lockdown, really, the early to mid 2020 sort of time. And now we embark in autumn. Well, I'm delighted to say I've got a couple of bits of work, which is nice because as a stand up comedian, yeah, the gigs are harder to come by at the minute. Uh, so I've been writing for Spitting Image, which is a marvellous thing, of course, to do. And something that I watched years ago, of course. Not Going Out, the sitcom I uh, co-write with uh, Lee Mack and several other writers have been writing for that too. So deadlined jobs, paid jobs, and this podcast, which is mostly, if I'm honest, a bit of fun. If you would like to help support the podcast, though, and make this more of a, you know, paid kind of thing uh, to encourage me back to the microphone uh, you can join us on patreon patreon.com slash paul carenza or coffee.com ko-fi.com slash paul carenza if you prefer and a huge thank you to those who've joined us on patreon already their first names and initials of surnames are andrew b mark l chris t dave and jackie w andrew and christine j mel o sarah and stephen m Sarah Mack and Anne-Marie T, who's just joined us. Thank you so much for your support for not only this podcast, but the other areas of things I do, like the regular Tuesday show on Facebook Live. It's called PK's Uplift Live. You're more than welcome, of course, to join me there too. You'll know that I mention that every week. And I also mention every week that we are nothing to do with the BBC themselves. I feel I ought to mention that. And that you can find us on Twitter and Facebook slash BB Century. And indeed, this episode, you'll find some lovely pictures of Lord John Reith, Sir John Reith, or Mr. John Reith, depending on what stage you find him at. A couple of bits of correspondence. Paula Goddard has been in touch. Hello, Paula. She says she's looking forward to when we get to Big Ben's Chimes starting on the BBC. So that will be New Year's Eve, 1923 to 1924. So probably the end of season two of this podcast. That's the best guess. Maybe start of season three. A year or so, perhaps, till we get there. Maybe next summer. I don't know. We'll see how we do. Uh, yeah, Paula is dwelling on that because she actually wrote for History Today magazine way back in 1998 an article about the BBC's first broadcast of Big Ben's Chimes. 
Uh, she wrote, from its inception in 1922, the BBC has broadcast time signals over the radio. Originally, the signal was a tune played by the announcer on a set of tubular bells. In 1924, a regular time signal service from the Greenwich Observatory was broadcast as a series of six electronically produced pips. Oh yes, celebrities, aren't they? When we get there, we will have a whole episode about the pips. In fact, maybe a whole series. One episode each. That'll be nice. This week it's Pip 3. Wouldn't that be amazing? Paula's article also notes that on the 18th of February 1956, radio listeners heard a rather odd time signal. Would you like to know what that odd time signal was? Well, I will tell you at the end of the episode. Well, enough looking forward. Let's start to look back then. And one last plug before we do so. If you like cultural history, as indeed I hope you do if you're listening to this podcast, you may like to know I've written a book. It's called Hark, the Biography of Christmas. It sort of does what I'm doing with broadcasting, but it does it with Christmas and the customs and why we do what we do. And it's now out as an audiobook. So it was out a few years ago in paperback, and I recorded uh, just before last Christmas an audiobook, and they held it back until uh, June, came out in June this year. Perfect time for a festive audiobook. So it is now on Audible. If you've not claimed an Audible free trial yet, you can get one. I've got a special magic link in the show notes, which I'll put. And if I'm honest, if you click on that link, I get a couple of quid from Amazon. So, uh, you know, they're doing well for themselves. I'm sure they could afford it. So if you fancy clicking that one, then I get a little kickback and doesn't cost you anything else. So thanks and merry listening if you'd like to find out more about why we do what we do at Christmas. Although, of course, I think Christmas 2020 will look rather different to most. Anyway, enough of Christmas talk. Let's get to broadcasting. To paraphrase Isaac Hayes, who's the first general manager of the BBC? Wreath. Damn right. Can you dig it? Don't forget those who went first, even if those who come later go further. If you know one name involved in the early BBC, it's John Wreath. If you're not familiar with this person, he was this very tall, very domineering, big first boss of the BBC. Terrifying to many, forbidding to some, scarred on his cheek, which sort of added to that look of a pre-Bond Bond villain. But before he applied for the job heading up the BBC, he had no involvement in broadcasting at all and no interest in it, really. So I thought it'd be quite interesting to piece together what he was doing when Ditcham and Round and Eckersley and Burroughs and Marconi's and Marconi indeed were all busy making broadcasting happen. So we'll have a few clips from the previous episodes to remind us of how we got to October 1922, but we'll also see what Wreath was doing at the time. And I think you may be surprised. This episode's bibliography includes Ian McIntyre's biography, The Expense of Glory, Gary Allegan's books are John Wreath, Wreath of the BBC by Wreath's daughter Marista Leishman, and The Wreath Diaries, edited by Charles Stewart. And you wonder why we can't release one episode a week anymore. So John Reith is born in July 1889. Marconi is 15 and about to start experimenting with wireless telegraphy in Italy. Of course, a lot of teenagers have had a radio in their room over the years. But Marconi, he's the first. As a teen, he sends radio waves across his bedroom, a transmitter and a receiver that rings a bell. Now John Reith was, as they say, a son of the manse. That describes someone growing up in the shadow of a Presbyterian minister. Well, John's father, George Reith, was not only that, but the leader of the Scottish Free Church, the moderator himself. 
Christmas 1906, the first entertainment on radio for ships near Brant Rock, Massachusetts. When Reg Fessenden was broadcasting the first entertainment radio programme, Reith was 17 and looking at an engineering apprenticeship. He was forced into it, really. He saw himself as a philosopher. An academic denied the chance to study. But John's brother realises early on that he's not going to go into the line of academia. He says you have an instinctive sense of values. You're a doer. You get things done. One of the first ship's wireless sets is on board the Titanic. Soon after Marconi's wireless transmissions were saving lives at sea, May 1912, John Reith, aged 22, nearly 23, meets one Charlie Bowser, who is 16. This was the first time I had spoken to him although I had often seen him about on the streets. Now, like John, Charlie Bowser's father worked for the church. Very nice little chap. I like him. Very good-looking and awfully pretty eyes. John Reith, helpfully, was a prolific diary keeper, so we have many, many first-hand accounts of exactly what he was thinking and what he was doing in those early days. A year later, John writes, I'm frightfully fond of him. It is, of course, quite ridiculous. My people do not approve of my liking Charlie so much. They carve their initials on a tree people start talking. 1913, John Reith and Charlie take trips to the Isle of Arran and stay overnight sharing beds, which may be a thing that young men did back in those days. In August 1913, Charlie slept with me again. Charlie a teenager, Reith in his mid-twenties. And then, of course, the war. John goes to fight, but he found that he couldn't really be led that easily. He gains respect of those under him, but those over him do not particularly take to him. And he never forgot Charlie back home. Well, how could he? He took two photos to war with him, a photo of his father and a photo of Charlie. They meet up on leave in Scotland in August 1915. Indescribably fine having Charlie here. We explored the Shaggy Burn for bathing places and found too. The Shaggy Burn, I should point out, is a place. Topping to be chasing around together. Church at 11. Had a ripping bathe, climbing about naked all over the place. Tea at 5. And then read Paradise Lost to Mother and Charlie. Mother, whose picture he did not take to war with him. They stay together. They pray together. Charlie wears John's ring. I kissed him on the platform. But back in the trenches, he wires fences. At one point, he actually strides accidentally into no man's land just to relieve himself. He dodges any bullets on that occasion. But a week later, he's not so lucky. A bullet strikes his cheek, leaving a five by three inch gash and losing him some bone. He gains a scar for life and he's gutted to leave the front line. Captain Peter Eckersley is actually there, the first ever ground-to-air radio communication. If you can hear me now, it will be the first time speech has ever been communicated to an aeroplane in flight. Captain Round, helping win the Battle of Jutland by inventing radio direction finding equipment. John Reith is taken away from it all. The United States to organise munition supplies and gets that real shot of what peacetime leadership could look like. In early 1917, near Philadelphia, Reith first hears radio. This from his revised diaries. On a certain Sabbath day, I was invited to accompany a college youth, some four years my junior, to visit his sanctum at the top of the house. In the corner by the window were contraptions quite strange to me. In fact, a primitive wireless set upon which, at 9pm, I was invited to listen to the time signal from Arlington, Virginia, 300 miles away. I was duly impressed and somewhat humiliated by my own ignorance, but I maintained a certain degree of self-respect by tapping out on his key a message in Morse at a speed which was too great for him to follow. When he arrives at the BBC, he will be scarcely more familiar with radio than that. 
The war ends, and for New Year's Eve that year, 1918, John writes, Last night, Charlie and I had a fruitful argument about our getting married. Separately, I should point out. It was a different time then. Almost quite a row. I had said I never thought of getting married, being satisfied with my friendship with him. He astounded me by saying that he intended to get married. I knew that marriage and our friendship were not compatible. Two months later, in February 1919, John starts courting Muriel Odoms, a driver at a plant he's working at. But it's an unusual courtship, and Charlie is ever-present. Now, I know some of you will be thinking, yeah, there's not much broadcasting going on in this episode, or indeed in John Reith's life at this point. But as you may be sensing, the presence of this Charlie character does seem at odds with the rather dictatorial, moralistic management style that John Reith has become known for. But anyway, John was destined to marry Muriel. On February the 20th, 1919, they went for a walk together. I had told her that for years the only people in the world I loved were my father and mother. And then Charlie came and without making any difference in my love to the old folks, I loved him more than all the world. I said that now, without lessening that, another love had come. Muriel's. Ditcham and Rounder both at Marconi's in Ireland. Ditcham's voice becomes the first to be sent across the Atlantic. Hello Canada, can you hear me? Please report signal. Soon after Ditcham and Round were transatlantically communicating... John and Muriel became engaged, April the 5th, 1919. John Reith agonises over proposing to Muriel. Charlie's there, he retreats a little bit, and John does propose. Muriel says yes. I was terribly concerned lest Charlie should think any girl could affect the intense fellowship between us. I went up to him and put my arms around his neck and kissed him and broke down and cried. It's destined to be a long engagement. John wants to be firmly ensconced in proper work before settling down with Muriel. And he's still confused, romantically. She was lying almost right on top of me, and I had my hand a wee bit inside her dress. I was quite unconscious of any sexual attraction or excitement. Charlie and I had a magnificent time later. And three months later... Muriel doesn't know the first thing about sex, nor how babies come. Now, before this seems something like a soap opera, let's get back to John's CV. So August 1919 till March 1920, he works at the Ministry of Munitions. He's running down war contracts. And, of course, he gets Charlie in somehow. He's notably neglectful with Muriel. And just down the road in London at this point, Peter Eckersley briefly works at Marconi House, trying to find a workshop as he goes from Croydon Aerodrome to ultimately Rittle, that field in Essex. And soon after that, W.T. Ditcham starts reading those railway timetables. Great Northern Railway starts at King's Cross, London, and the North Western Railway then starts Ditcham's from Houston, news service. Britain's first programme title. Winifred Sayer as radio's first singer. Will you start now, please? John Reith has offered a good engineering job in Bombay at £2,500 a year, but it's as deputy. I did not wish to be second. No, for John Reith, he's boss or nothing. And so he agrees to a different job, managing a factory, Beardmore's, in Coatbridge, in Scotland. And so when the Melbourne concert happens on June 15th, 1920, Peter Eckersley listens in. John Reith doesn't. Well, it wouldn't really reach him up at Beardmore's factory in Coatbridge, in Scotland. And this is where he buys a house with Muriel, finally looking like settling down, near Dunblane, in Scotland. So what sort of manager is John Reith at Coatbridge, then? Well, he's not a popular one to begin with. He introduces a time clock for workers to get the most out of them, and that doesn't go down too well. He's a hardliner as a boss. But he does become popular because he adds social events to start sweetening the pill. 
I believe that a business depends on one man, whether he's executive chairman or chairman or, or general manager or what. It depends on one man for its success. And this is also when Charlie starts at Cope Bridge. Yes, John's got him that job there. But by October 1920, problems begin at the Cope Bridge factory, and so he postpones the wedding yet again by another six months, while John is moving mountains to have his beloved Charlie by his side. And Muriel, his literally long-suffering fiancée, is furious. So then we have the ban on radios from November 23rd, 1920. The General Post Office argued that we are in one giant laboratory. We must restrict use accordingly. Peter Eckersley is delighted that he can actually start his radio tests once again. But Arthur Burroughs and the other radio amateurs, they are not so happy, waiting a year and a half for those licences to be forthcoming again. So while radio is silent, what's John Reith up to? April 1921, Charlie meets his future wife. John arranges the courtship, thinking that Charlie is ready for marriage now. But by the end of June, John admits that he's jealous of Charlie's wife-to-be, Maisie, and the cracks start to appear in the friendship of John and Charlie. They always wondered, should they get married? And they did. July 14th, 1921, John gets married to Muriel, finally. It's a lovely wedding in Sussex. And the honeymoon, though, is less lovely. John writes to Charlie every single day, and he wants to leave the honeymoon early. The amateurs of England petitioned the then Postmaster General that they might have a station on which to calibrate their receiver. And uh, with a certain automaticity of an inverted Micawber that's waiting for something to turn down, he did indeed turn it down. Charlie gets engaged to Maisie. And although John introduced Maisie into Charlie's life, he is not happy about their union. Things worsen between them as 1922 gets underway. With all these examples of his cruelty, as I regard it, I still love him. Of course he's not responsible. It's the damned woman and her damned mother. The amateurs persisted and under the influence of these shock tactics, the Postmaster General eventually did say that they could have a station. It fell to us at Riddle. While Eckersley's preparing to kickstart broadcasting, February 10th, 1922. Charlie for supper. He has become infernally dogmatic. I can't teach him anything these days. He seems to resent any suggestion from me. But I am so fond of him as ever. Around about now, Charlie's parents called John Reith tyrannical and overbearing. They did not mourn their waning friendship. As we know, February 14th, 1922, 2MT Rittle starts. 2MA Talk Rittle Testing. This is 2MA Talk Rittle first regular testing. broadcast Hello. service under Peter Eckersley. John Reith has no real idea. He's fixated ever on Charlie and his wife-to-be Maisie, or as he calls her in his diary, Jezebel. Meanwhile, in his work life, after months of losses, the head office of Beardmore's tells John that the oil engine department is to be closed. I shall soon be quit of these skunks. And a week later... He resigns, with six months' notice and a good salary to tie him over. I should never have left London. The day after he resigns, Charlie marries. Reith organises the wedding, but describes it as a horrid event. In his diary, he calls it weird. At the end, when Charlie walks down the aisle with Maisie, It was worse than when the ring was being put on. Whatever happens on Charlie and Maisie's honeymoon, Maisie clearly spends it convincing Charlie to finally end whatever it is between him and John. He broke off our friendship finally. By letter. The most amazing document I have ever received. Yes, literally, it's a dear John letter. And that's it. Charlie is out of John's life, though not out of his head. He ends March with no job and no friend. But meanwhile, radio as we know it is being launched. There may be some atmospherics. Because just two days after that letter, there may be some jammy. Eckersley takes over 2MT. 
Hang on, CQ. After that rather drunken pub meal. Well, let's leave John Reith briefly friendless, hopeless, jobless, which he sort of needs to be to put himself in the place to manage the fledgling BBC. But in this breather, let's have an airwave memory from one of you. Cole Morton is a broadcaster, a journalist, a writer and a thoroughly nice person. His first novel, The Lightkeeper, is out now. And here he gives us his memories of inspirational broadcasting. And it's all about someone who changed jobs only a little bit more often than John Reith did. Hello, my name's Cole Morton. I live down on the south coast. My earliest memories of BBC programmes are kids' programmes, of course. Mr Ben, that mysterious bowler-hatted traveller in time and space, I suppose, who would pop into the shopkeeper's changing room, put on a costume and become a knight or appear in a souk. Just fantastic ideas and possibilities that opened up in the brain of a little kid in a council flat in East London in the 70s and just made me think of a wider world. Cole's book The Lightkeeper is highly recommended. So back to John Reith. Let's try and line him up then for the BBC. But at this point, he still doesn't really know what radio is at all. He's not got one. He's largely been fixated on this very close friendship with Charlie and generally being a very bossy manager of wherever he can land. But without work, he ends April 1922, fed up of Scotland and heading to London to seek his fortune. And it's the same time that someone else in London, Arthur Burroughs, is seeking a second broadcast licence in early May so that Tuolo, the London station of Marconi's, can launch. I was with Marconi's wireless telegraph company when Tuolo began... For John Reith, though, it looks like work may take him overseas again. There are job possibilities back in Bombay or South America. He doesn't take them, though, not through not wanting to uproot or leave Muriel, his wife, or not through wanting to stay near Charlie. Charlie is, of course, gone, but not forgotten. Really, it's through wanting the right job with a sense of leadership and purpose. He knows that he's made for something great. He doesn't quite know what it is yet. But yes, he is still very bitter about Charlie. On May the 7th, John is asked to read the Bible reading in church about Elijah fleeing for his life from Jezebel. Extraordinary coincidence. So this is the time that in Radioland, that golden week is upon us. More influential than any other. That's when Tuolo London starts on May the 11th. Tuolo Marconi House London calling. And then 2ZY Manchester starts five days later. We in the north felt ourselves in competition with Marconi in the south. In fact, we developed at the same time as Captain Peter Eckersley was developing in Rittle. That was 2ZY boss Kenneth Wright, and here's John Reith. The post office had by then received many applications for broadcasting licenses from firms and had invited the more substantial applicants to a meeting at St. Martin's Le Grand. Here it was suggested that they should get together and evolve some cooperative method of running and managing broadcasting. Then five days after that, May 23rd, we've not really featured this, but this is the first time that broadcasting is mentioned in Parliament. Lieutenant Colonel Murray asks the Postmaster General, On what principle and subject to what conditions licences for wireless broadcasting stations are given to industrial concerns? And whether he will name the concerns, if any, to which licences have been or are to be given? In response to this first mention of broadcasting in Parliament, Mr Kellaway, the Postmaster General, says, I'm not yet in a position to furnish the information required by the Honourable and Gallant Member, 
The manufacturers concerned are meeting today with a view to formulating proposals for my consideration. And indeed, two days later, the BBC gets its name, thanks to a scribble on a piece of paper by Frank Gill. Meanwhile, for Reith, at the end of May 1922, he is advised by a doctor to go overseas to really try and mend his marriage and mend his life. Muriel wants to go to France. John doesn't. So as a compromise, they go to Jersey, third class. Here I am, now conscious of abilities which almost overwhelm me, and yet nothing to do. I am dreadfully perplexed as to where my future work is to lie, pulpit or pew or printed page. May I be led nearer to Christ and kept there in future. Despite his confused state of career at this point, in mid-June of 1922, he's actually invited back to his old school to give a talk on choosing a career. Yeah, physician heal thyself. And he uses that talk to actually have a really big tangent about friendship. I would recommend one real friend rather than a dozen lesser ones. It may be the divinest thing in your life. Take care, however, that the loss of it will not destroy your mental equilibrium. I speak from experience. John and Muriel go back to Scotland to find work. There's a possibility of a job in the United States, but that possibility vanishes fairly quickly. Speaking of the United States, it's June 1922 that those principles that we now associate with John Reith, the Reithian values, were expressed before Reith even knew of broadcasting. Broadcasting represents a job of entertaining, informing and educating the nation. American David Sarnoff. Elsewhere, June 21st, there's a big money meeting and the licence fees established. June 22nd, Arthur Burroughs demonstrates radio in Peckham at an exhibition. June 23rd is Broadcasting's second appearance in Parliament as the wireless telegraphy and signalling bill is amended. The Postmaster General, Mr Calloway. The bill does not propose in any way to withdraw from the public the advantages of wireless communication. On the contrary, the bill will leave full scope for inventive genius by allowing the erection of experimental stations in proper hands. The next day, June 24th, is the first proper broadcast concert. Cellist Beatrice Evelyn, pianist Ethel Walker and baritone Charles Knowles. John Reith is about to turn 33. July 19th, on his birthday eve, on the cusp of midnight, he stands outside Charlie's gates. Awful longing for Charlie. Such stirrings of ability too, and the desire to do something great in the world. Now, between July 26th and August 4th, there are four major debates on wireless broadcasting in the House of Commons. I'm thinking in a future episode, a special after this season's finished, to recite and recreate for you the entire broadcasting parliamentary debates, or as much as feels democratically relevant or interesting. So, watch this space. So the manufacturers appointed a committee which, after much negotiation and argument among themselves and with the post office, brought about the formation of the BBC. As the wireless manufacturers agree to one rather than two British broadcasting companies, back with John Reith, he's having a flirtation with a tennis partner, Miss Nora Whitehead. While it doesn't go to the bedroom as such, it does go somewhere. She and I went into the garden and I had my first experience of kissing a girl on the lips with anything more in it. This short affair with that girl is very regrettable, and naturally, I am ashamed of it. Now, I will level with you. I do feel bad even mentioning this stuff, really. It's tittle-tattle, isn't it? Gossiping about John Reese's love life. And yet it does feel relevant because when in charge of our beloved BBC, Mr or Sir or Lord Wreath went out of his way to enforce a strict moral code. You know, a divorce, you're fired. An affair, you're on borrowed time and you may not be allowed anywhere near religious programming. Marital ethics were paramount under Wreath. So I think his pre-BBC dalliances do inform that and educate us and, yes, perhaps entertain. September the 8th. 
the first international radio exhibition, first King's Cup race. On this same day, Reith writes of his tennis partner. She was sarcastic about my not knowing how to kiss a girl, as she put it, and endeavoured to show me how it should be done. I've had practically no thought of Charlie since Nora Whitehead came on the scene, but perhaps the cure is worse than the disease. Yes, perhaps Reith needs a new project to arrive later in the year. Meanwhile, it's Fab Week, the first all-British wireless exhibition and convention. And September ends with a rare moment of flagellation from John Reith. Awfully worried that Muriel is so unhappy and very sick with myself at how I have been behaving generally. So Reith needs decisive new action. He writes to Sir William Bull, the Conservative MP for Hammersmith, asking for advice about a political career. Now, Bull's son had actually been at that talk at John's old school, Gresham's, where Reith had bemoaned the frailty of friendship. I felt I had gone far from my old principles, his Reithian principles, and far from God. I asked forgiveness and to be brought back. Back to London, perhaps. Sunday the 1st of October 1922, we are getting ever closer now. Reith arrives in London and he goes straight to church. On that very first day, the minister preaches, And I sought for a man among them, but I found none. And in the sermon, it suggested that perhaps there is someone in the church tonight who could save the country from heathendom and immorality. And Reith thinks, yes, it's me. Two days later, the 3rd of October, Sir William Bull meets with Reith, and two days after that, a different Sir William, Sir William Noble, is finalising plans for the BBC. All differences have been settled. We shall be ready to register the company at an early date. And a week later, Sir William Bull offers John Reith a job as Secretary of the London Unionist MPs. It's a group that meets fortnightly. It's not a bad start for a career that John's planning in politics. And yet, the next morning, he spies an advertisement which may send him on a different career path. October the 13th, John reads the Morning Post. He could equally have read the Times, the Daily Telegraph, the Manchester Guardian, the Glasgow Daily Herald, all had the same advertisement. The British Broadcasting Company, Information, applications are invited for the following offices. General Manager, Director of Programmes, Chief Engineer, Secretary. Only of those with first-class qualifications need apply, it said. Whatever that means, how do you have first-class qualifications in a thing that doesn't exist yet? I thought that was the sort of job I was looking for because it had a secretary and a director of programmes. I didn't know what that meant. So I wrote an application in the Cavendish Club, as it then was called, in Piccadilly. I posted it in the pillar box. Then I did what I ought to have done before, looked up the name of the man, which advertisement said would receive the applications. Having looked him up in who's who, I then went to the hall porter and persuaded him to allow me to recover this letter. And I added a pierce. I am an Abedonian, and it is probable that you knew my family. And that is why I got the job. Uh, it's not what you know. It's what you know about who you know, who's in who's who, and where who you know went to school with who else you know, and how's your father. His application went on. Since relinquishing my last post... We know that's a loss-making factor in Scotland. I've been abroad. And we know that he was forced to go to Jersey to save his marriage, hardly abroad. But came to town last week to make inquiries and arrangements for future work. Yeah, he was desperate. You will observe that I am an engineer by training. And yet knew nothing of broadcasting. But that I have had wide commercial experience and that I have held organising and administrative appointments of considerable responsibility. He did indeed feel ready for this, whatever this was. He gets no reply for two months, in which time a leading journalist is in fact offered the general managership of the BBC, but turns it down because the job isn't big enough. So Reith ultimately will take his place. 
But in those intervening two months, Reith is going to be busy working both for the London Unionists and his immediate boss, Sir William Bull. So for now, Reith is all about the politics. And Reith's job for William Bull does ramp up a gear. Now his boss is on the campaign trail for re-election. The general election is set for November the 15th, the day after the BBC will ultimately launch. The events of 1922 and Reith's own trajectory seem to be inevitably drawn to these mid-November London days. I don't regret the past because regretting the past is a great mistake. I look forward and nothing but look forward. And I ask you all to look forward to, with me, to greater achievements and to happier days. So there you have it. An infatuation with a young man, a broken friendship, a questionable marriage, a yearning for leadership and an impassioned faith. All moulding and inspiring the John Reith who will take charge of the BBC for 16 years and take it from a staff of four to a global super broadcaster. Before we go, Paula Goddard's article was going to tell us about the unusual Big Ben time signals on the 18th of February 1956. Why were they unusual? The answer? The clock's microphone picked up the chatter of workmen and broadcast it to the world mixed in with the chimes. Paula's article doesn't say what they said, or if they kept the language clean. Where the f*** is Valerie? So next time, before the BBC launches, late October 1922 will bring us the first radio drama and the first radio comedy. So we've got an interview with comedy historian Alan Stafford as the stars align in our tale. John Reith joins the party, burrows and Eckersley are digging their heels in, and simply put, we'll all learn a little bit more about the origins of this British broadcasting century. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music was by Will Farmer. Archive clips are probably so old it's not really worth worrying about, but we think they're public domain. If you disagree, do tell Will Grovel. Stay, as Reith would have it, informed, educated and entertained. And join us next time for comedy and drama on the British Broadcasting Century.